Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Water Cooler. We're coming at you on this fine Sunday afternoon to talk about the latest. We got the World Series. We've got the NBA season has just started. Tyson Fury has just defended his NBA champion or his boxing world championship against Frank Ndoku in what was a surpriser of a fight. So we'll jump right into it, talk about the biggest thing first. We've got the World Series is currently tied one game to one. The next game's tomorrow, but game one was a nail-biter. The Rangers pulled it out six to five over the Arizona Diamondbacks. But in game two, the Diamondbacks were able to put a thumping on the Rangers with a nine to one win. So in that win, there was only one home run, which is really impressive to me because typically if there's a 9-1 to win, you just kind of assume somebody hit like a three-run home run and somebody hit a two-run home run. But no, there was only one home run hit, and it was a solo. And it was really just a good all-around hitting performance from the Diamondbacks. The two MVPs of the game were designated hitter Tony Pam who went four for four, and pitcher Merrill Kelly, who went seven innings and had nine strikeouts and held Texas to only four hits. And if you have a hitting game like that and a good pitching game like that, there's not really much that you can do to blow it. So just an all-around great performance by the Diamondbacks and really the bounce back they needed after a heartbreaking loss in game one to really get the momentum back on their side. Now, going into game three, Vegas is absolutely deadlocked. I've never really seen this before, but both teams are even for betting odds. They're both a minus 110 favorites. So, Vegas is saying that it's a toss-up, and I'm tending to agree. I think, depending on how the series goes out, this is probably the most important game just to determine where the momentum swings. Now, I talked a big game about momentum last week, but clearly it is not all that I cracked it up to be because we had the Phillies going down to the Ast- or to the um, Diamondbacks, even though I was saying they had all the momentum and same thing with the Astros going down to the Rangers. So they both, the Diamondbacks and the Rangers, managed to forestall the momentum swing and who knows how that can play out in this series, but I still think that it is important to have the momentum, and I think whoever wins game three will stake their claim on it and kind of set the tone for the series going forward. And I mean, after a 9-1 to crushing loss, you got to think Arizona's firing on all cylinders right now. Like I said, 16 hits, and it was pretty evenly distributed. So all their batting lineup is in pretty good stride. They've got the advantage as far as pitching is concerned because game three we'll see Brandon Taft take on Max Scherzer and of the two Taft has been the better pitcher this year. He had a 2.7 ERA in the regular season and a 1.86 ERA in the NLCS and in the postseason he's got a ratio of 22 strikeouts to three walks. 
So if he can bring that kind of energy into game three, I'm going to predict the Diamondbacks, but hopefully at the very least, Texas can do something to make it competitive because unless you're a Diamondbacks fan, you always hate to see blowouts, especially in the championship series, because it just takes away the fun factor of watching. I mean, unless you're a diehard, if it's a 9-1 to victory, then you're probably not tuning in for the whole game if it's just a drum beating the entire time. So hopefully we get to see a little bit more competition in game three and that the Rangers show up to play because four hits is not going to cut it in the World Series. So hopefully they took some lessons from game two and they're ready to play because if not, I think the Diamondbacks might be making short work of But We'll see, and hopefully going forward, Vegas can be more definitive and who's got the odds, because if you're trying to put some money down and you went to Vegas and all they kind of do is give you a shoulder shrug, it's like, eh, it could go either way, bet at your own risk, then that is not going to make you a handicapper. Now, moving on to Tyson Fury, so... I mentioned a couple weeks back that he has a big title fight coming up against Alexander Usyk, who is a Russian fighter, big menacing guy, should be a knockdown dragout fight. And if I'm him, then I'm feeling awful confident about my chances against Tyson Fury, given that Tyson Fury got knocked down by Frank Ndoku in his first boxing fight. Now, Frank was a UFC longtime fighter. I think his entire record in the UFC was 20-3, and and he's a former UFC heavyweight champ, so it's not like he's some fight game novice, but in his first professional fight, he takes a dominant, previously dominant, world heavyweight champion to the limit. Not only that, he even goes as far as to knock him down. It's just not a good look for Tyson Fury. And it indicates one of two things for me. Either it could be both. And Tyson Fury colluded to this in his post-fight press conference. He said that Frank not having the pro fighting experience, but also being a trained fighter with his UFC background, made him really hard to game plan for because and I, this isn't how Tyson Fury phrased it, but it's just the bluntest way to put it. He was so unskilled as a boxer but had the raw fighting ability that it made it really hard to defend against because he wasn't fighting fundamentally sound and Tyson Fury really didn't know what he was going to do next because neither did Frank and Doku. So... His lack of boxing technique worked to his advantage because it made it really hard for Tyson Fury to anticipate a defense against him, which is kind of genius. But also, I don't think that that's a valid excuse for Tyson Fury because if his best argument as for why he struggled so much is that, well, he wasn't a trained boxer, so I didn't know what to do. But that, that doesn't really sound good on paper or in the air but my and I think the more reasonable uh, expectation of this is that 
Tyson Fury kind of took his eye off the ball and was more focused with his upcoming world titleweight, world heavyweight championship fight against Usyk in December, potentially. Uh, and wasn't so really focused on this because, like we said, this is Ndoku's first fight. So I think he just didn't prepare for this particular opponent as well as he should have. And it almost bit him in the butt. Could you imagine if somebody won the World Heavyweight Championship in their first professional fight? That would be insane. And honestly, it would have made headline news and made for an amazing podcast for me. But that's not the way it goes. I So Frank Ndoku is 37 years old. So realistically, his window for being a long-term competitor in the boxing field, like maybe will he be a potential world champion? He's got a very short window, but if you can go toe-to-toe with one of the greatest heavyweights of all time in your debut, add on to that, if you just look at the dude, he is jacked. He's clearly got great fight instincts just based on his UFC career. If he really wanted to, I think he could make a decent show of it in the boxing world for the next five years or so. I mean, just looking at the two of them in their fight, Jackson Fury has kind of made it his staple that he's not in good shape. And obviously, aesthetic shape is not the same thing as strength or power. But it also does help to be in pure, prime physical condition. And Frank and Doku certainly had Tyson Fury's number on that as well. So if you just have a combination of fighters, one who is like massive 6'9", kind of overweight guy up against a 6'4", pure muscle, like peak physical condition, like it'll be a lot more competitive than you would think. And I think if you just didn't know who the fighters were, most people would probably pick Ndoku. But Tyson Fury hopefully takes a lesson from this, not to lose his eye the tiger and don't end up uh, getting Mike Tyson against a Buster Douglas one day. And that's my biggest takeaways from the fight. I mean, I'm excited to see where Ndoku goes from here. He's got Mike Tyson in his quarter, so if anybody can kind of stray Ndoku against the pitfalls of get letting somebody upset you like that, it is Mike Tyson, because he has plenty of experience, and I'm excited to see how this fight turns out for Fury in December. Now, I say maybe in December, because they haven't officially announced the date yet. Tentatively, it's December 26th, but after this fight, uh, Fury might have to take some time off to recover. I doubt going into it, he anticipated that he would have as many injuries as he does now, but here he is, so we'll have to see how it shakes out. That uh, knockdown, though, it came in the third round off of just a great right hand from Ndoku. And it kind of, you could hear it when he went down. The entire arena just kind of was shocked. The announcers were going nuts. Nobody could believe it. Tyson Fury certainly couldn't believe it. And it was just 
a cool moment, even though unfortunately Endoku lost, but he did he got the moral victory for whatever that's worth. Because he did way better than anybody expected. I think most people thought it would be kind of a Mayweather Conor McGregor where it's a cool UFC boxing crossover. Obviously the boxer's gonna win, but maybe we'll see some cool action. But no, this was a way better fight than Mayweather versus McGregor. For sure. Now, in college, in the college football world, so Tyson Fury did not get upset yesterday. Oklahoma did. They fell 38-33 to to the Kansas Jayhawks, which if you're listening to this and you were born after 1997, this is the first time in our lifetimes we've actually got to see Kansas beat Oklahoma. That was just one stat that ESPN showed yesterday to put forward just how big of a deal this upset was. And Oklahoma has fallen to 10th in the AP poll. And, I mean, this is just a common trend amongst college football teams this season, it seems like. But it all came down to turnovers and penalties. Oklahoma had two fumbles and one interception. And they doubled the amount of penalties and the loss of yards that Kansas had. I think in penalties, Oklahoma had 11 and Kansas had 5. And they lost 101 yards, whereas Kansas only lost 55. And it was a back-and-forth game. Like It wasn't like they got blown out. Like I said, 38-33, to it came down to the final seconds. And if they could have just gotten 50 yards back in penalties, I think we have an entirely different ball game. I mean, it also, they just got off to a slow start. They went scoreless in the first quarter, and that kind of set the tone for the rest of the game in that they were playing catch-up because Kansas got off to an easy lead, and Oklahoma never really regained the momentum consistently. There were a couple points in the ball game where they got back ahead, but Kansas never let them get that out in front, safe, secure lead because even when Oklahoma would get ahead, Kansas would either get right back in it or just get back ahead altogether. So definitely not the way Oklahoma wanted that to turn out. I mean, I think essentially that kind of does it for their playoff hopes. But you never know if they go undefeated the rest of the year and let this inspire them and be dominant, then maybe they can make something happen. But dropping to 10 this late in the season is not a good look. Alabama's up to 8. Georgia stays number 1. They rolled through Florida yesterday. Uh, I mean, the game was pretty much over in the second quarter. There was a part where Florida was close, closing in on getting a touchdown, and they got sacked a fourth down in just an absolutely stupid play. They tried one of those trick plays where the quarterback hands it off to a receiver and lets him make the big pass, and UGA's defense saw right through it, sacked the receiver, and got a quick and easy touchdown, and they were just dead in the water after that. Now, the next three weeks are going to be the toughest part in UGA's schedule. They've got Mizzou, then Ole Miss, then Tennessee, 
all three of those teams are ranked. Mizzou's 14, and Old Miss and Tennessee are somewhere in the 15-20 range, I believe. So if any upset's going to happen from UGA this season, it's going to be within the next three weeks. And this will really show how serious of a chance UGA has to repeat because, like I've said many times over the last couple weeks, they haven't really been tested yet. Their schedule has been as soft as pudding, and this will be a good shot to see just how serious they are up against real competition. And I'm excited to see it. Like I, I really haven't cared about any of UGA's games this season just because I haven't been impressed with what they're up against. But I'll definitely be tuning in against Mizzou, Ole Miss, and Tennessee. And we'll see what the dogs have got. Now, my favorite part of the week in sports was the NBA season finally kicking off. And there's a lot to talk about just based off of the first week. Super exciting. Basketball is my favorite sport and is always my favorite part of the year when basketball season is going on. And I think the most anticipated part of the NBA's first week was Damian Lillard making his Bucks debut. So the Bucks have only played one game this week. They're actually about to start their second game in like an hour, and they're playing the Hawks. So unfortunately, the days of the Hawks challenging the Bucks is long gone. I know they had a very tough Eastern Conference Finals matchup two years ago, but the Hawks are down 0-2 to start the season, and I got a good feeling they're going to go down 0-3 after tonight. But the Bucks did beat the 76ers 118 to 117, and Damian Lillard got off to a flaming hot start to his Milwaukee career with 39 points, 8 rebounds, and 4 assists. Meanwhile, Giannis had 23 points and 13 assists. Now, the biggest takeaway from that game, as far as the league is concerned, has nothing to do with the Bucks or Damian Lillard. It has to do with James Harden. Because if James Harden was there, there's a good chance that the Bucks lose that game because they lost by one point without him. And last year, he was the league leader in assists. He was averaging 10 assists a game. So, I mean, if he just shows up and puts any points on the board at all, then the Bucks probably lose. But James Harden is still on his protest against the 76ers, refusing to play, and he's being investigated by the league office for that because he missed the 76ers' first two games, and the league feels that he did not present a valid excuse for not being present, and as such, they're looking into the situation, and I think what they'll find is that he's pitching a temper tantrum, and the 76ers don't want to deal with him and have his tantrum flowing into the current active players they have, so they're keeping him separate from the team, and I think both of them will probably end up getting fined. Either that or the NBA will do their investigation. They know what the problem is. They just don't want to come out and say it, and so they just quietly don't do anything about it, just like 
when they investigated Damian Lillard for tampering over the summer. And I haven't heard anything about the outcome of that investigation. I doubt any of you had either. It just kind of quietly goes away. I mean, that's been the NBA's modus operandi for years. Back in the 90s, they were investigating Michael Jordan for gambling. He retires to go play minor league baseball. And then two weeks later, the investigation wraps up. So I expect nothing different to come out of this investigation. But it is worth noting that the league at least is indicating it's starting to care about what their star players do as far as missing games for no other reason than that they don't want to play. But, I mean, as far as the fit goes, Damian Lillard made himself right at home in the offense, and if you're getting Dame Lillard, that's exactly what you get him for. I mean, nobody raves about Dame Lillard for his defensive prowess. It's always the fact that he's nonstop offense. And that's what they've got going on, and that's what Milwaukee could always use more of. Him and Giannis, I think, will be the deadliest one-two punch in the league this season. And I'm excited to see where they can take it. Uh, ESPN, in their preseason power ranking, they had Giannis ranked number one and Joker number two. And I'm, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I'm really hoping we get to see a Bucks nuggets finals matchup just so we can see the two of them go head-to-head competing to see who is the best player in the league. Now, one person who might take issue with that preseason power ranking is LeBron, who is ranked ninth, and which is the lowest he's ever been ranked in the ESPN preseason ranking. But he is heading into year 21, and I'm going to go ahead and make the bold prediction that this will be LeBron James' first season averaging below 25 points a game in his entire career. His Lakers have got off to a piddling start. So they lost their first game against the Nuggets, 119-107, to because Anthony Davis, unlike James Harden, who just didn't show up, period, Anthony Davis at least put his jersey on and was on the court, but he may as well have pulled a James Harden and not shown up based on his stat line. He was a minus 17 which at this point in their careers, like I just said, LeBron is going into season 21. He should not have to be the best player on this team. He, and obviously Anthony Davis, if he's going to be the Robin, he's still a great Robin. But I guarantee you, when LeBron and the Lakers traded for Anthony Davis in 2019, they anticipated him eventually taking over from LeBron as the leader and best player of this team. I think they wanted to kind of have another Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar situation where, you know, Magic comes in as a rookie and obviously AD was not a rookie, but as a younger player. And Kareem kind of slowly ages out and he eases Magic into control of the franchise. And then when Kareem retires, Magic takes over as the man. Or as Kareem gets old, Magic takes over as the man. And Kareem gets to hang on a couple more years with a lightened workload. But that doesn't look like that will be the case for LeBron. 
as he goes into year 21, still having to be the best player in the league or on his team for them to have any real shot at playoff contention. And he's kind of had the same story going on for the last 10 years. I mean, when he first came back to Cleveland with Kyrie and Kevin Love, the idea was having those two would help LeBron have a lessened workload and to be able to delegate more team responsibility as he aged. Because back then, 30 years old was old for a prime NBA star. So it didn't work out in Cleveland. It's not working out in L.A. I don't know what the common denominator is there, but I'll let y'all make y'all's own opinions on that. I don't know, but game two was better for AD. But before we get to that, let me just highlight what Joker did. He had a triple-double and was plus 15 and was basically everything Anthony Davis wasn't. He dropped 29 points, 11 assists, and 13 rebounds. And just a fantastic performance all around. And when it comes down to the Joker-Giannis debate, to me, it just depends on what you want, just all-around player or just a pure offensive juggernaut. And, I mean, a scoring juggernaut. I and mean, Joker puts up points, but not in the dominating way Giannis does. It's more of a stealthy 30 points that he'll put up whereas Giannis is just hammering it down. I mean, at the end of the day, 30 points is 30 points. But there is a psychological edge to being more dominant in how you score. But that's neither here nor there. That's just the biggest difference I see between the two players. Is one is an all-around phenomenon, while the other is just a pure scoring machine. Now, in game two, AD showed up. He dropped 30 points and got 12 boards. And he still wasn't the best player on the team. LeBron also showed out and had the higher plus minus between the two. So if you're into efficiency, even after dropping 30, AD still wasn't the man. But, I mean, you can't ever sneeze at 30 and 12. And that really just shows the dilemma the Lakers have with Anthony Davis is that he's a tale of two games. And you never know what Anthony Davis you're going to get. And after the game, LeBron went off to the media for them going in on AD after his four game one. He told the press that him, the Lakers, and AD don't give an S about all the criticism and what all the haters are saying. But I think they should. Because, I mean, obviously, some people are going to hate just to hate. And there's nothing you can do about them. But for others, I mean, they actually have valid criticism. And it all comes down to what it is that you're trying to do this season. If you want to compete for a championship, you have to find a way to make Anthony Davis play consistently, or else you just don't have any realistic shot at playing. There's no problems about it. So they should take some of this criticism, at least the more nuanced ones, into account and work with AD to try to make him be a more consistent player. Now, the second game saw 
them beat the Suns 100 to 95. And as impressive as it sounds on paper, for those of you who haven't been keeping up, Devin Booker was injured, so they did not beat the Suns at full force. And KD dropped 39 points. So, like, kind of like James Harden not being there for the Bucks win, I have a good feeling that if Devin Booker were there, it would have been a completely different story. But that's not the world we live in, and the Lakers can rest easy knowing they didn't start their season off 0-2. Now, the biggest non-championship race story going into the season was the debut of Victor Webanyama. And as I've talked about on the pod before, a lot of people were hyping him up after the preseason, after the summer league. And based on his first two games, they are sorely disappointed that he's not coming in and having the impact that they were hoping. I would say that his first two games were mixed, a mixed bag. He had 15 points on six of nine shooting in the first game, which is perfectly fine for a rookie. It's not next level GOAT status player numbers, but for a 19-year-old making his first NBA performance, I think that's perfectly fine. Now, his second game was when a lot of the bigger issues came out. He scored 21 points, which sounds good on paper, but he did it on 7 of 19 shooting. He went 0 from 6 from three-point range, which if you're 7 of 4, I know I sound like an old head when I say it, but there is no reason you should be taking six three-pointers. Now, he did get 12 boards in the second game, which is something you do want to see out of somebody who is doing that kind of work. But as somebody who is being hyped up to be this next level player, I think it does not bode well for Victor Webanyama to be jacking up six threes when clearly they're not falling. And he's got to be more aggressive on the boards. 12 was good in the second game. He had five in the first. And it just really comes down to where he's going to emphasize his performance. Because if he's going to be out there jacking up threes, it's going to cut down on his boards. And... He's going to have less offensive rebounding opportunities. If you're seven foot four, there's a good chance that even if you have a poor shooting performance, you can just get a bunch of second chance shots by catching your own miss and putting it back up. I mean, that's what Moses Malone and Will Chamberlain did all the time back in the day. So, I mean, just based off of that, the strategy of a seven four center shooting threes all the time just does not make sense. But, I mean, he's still young. It's just two games in. I'm not saying that he can't go on to have a great season. I think he definitely – I would say there's a 95% chance he wins rookie of the year. And he goes on to have a decent season if he can stay healthy. But too many people are making too much out of what his first two games have been when it's just not really that big of a deal. I mean, after two games, some people are ready to throw in the towel on his entire career. 
and some people are already comparing him to Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And it's like, there can be a middle ground. I know the media is all about the views and the living in the moment takes, but sometimes a more laid back, nuanced approach is the most common sense. And you don't always have to hurt a player's career by comparing him to Michael Jordan two games in, when those are huge shoes to fill, that if you think Jordan's the GOAT, no other NBA player in history has ever lived up to that standard. So why would you thrust it upon somebody who's only played two games and isn't even old enough to drink a beer yet? So that's just my thoughts on Victor Webanyama. Now, on to WWE. Ric Flair made his AEW debut as Tony Khan surprised to Sting for announcing his retirement last week. Like I mentioned, Sting, who has been wrestling since 1985, is going to be calling it quits here in March. It's been a remarkable career. He's been... Like I said about uh, Oklahoma and Kansas, if you were born after 1997, you've never lived to see Kansas beat Oklahoma. Well, if you're not older than 1985, then Sting has been wrestling your entire life. So it's crazy to think that somebody who was uh, like a four-year-old whenever Sting made his debut can sit and watch Sting have his last match with like their child who's like a senior in high school could be in college. And I mean, depending on, uh, I guess, how their family history shapes out, they may even have grandkids. And they're sitting there, you could have three generations of people watching Sting's final match. And it's just crazy to think about longevity in the wrestling world, especially with the toll that those guys put on their bodies. I mean, Sting back in the 80s, was wrestling like 300 something times a year and those rings aren't made out of pillows you can know you're getting thrown off the top rope but that doesn't make the fall any gentler so for him to just make it this long is remarkable now i do take some umbrage with what sting said in his promo on dynamite where he was talking about darby allen his tag team partner and he said Darby Allen is the best tag team partner he's ever had. Now, I will give him the benefit of the doubt that maybe he's talking about from an in-ring perspective or a potential perspective, but for an, from an all-time, maybe he was even talking about just like their personal relationship. But from an all-time great standpoint, Sting has had so many like greater quote-unquote partners than Darby Allen. I mean, he's partnered with the Ultimate Warrior. He's partnered with Lex Luger. So for him to say that Darby Allen is the greatest partner he's ever had, I'm sure he meant it as a compliment to Darby, but it kind of just sounded like a shot at those other two guys. So I'm not sure what that was about. But Ric Flair comes out, he hypes up Sting, and he tells Sting that He's going to be riding with him until his last match. Now, I don't know if that means that Ric Flair 
is going to be a regular on AEW television until Sting retires, or if Ric Flair was just making stuff up, trying to sound good and maybe get himself a couple more appearances booked. So, I mean, be on the lookout because Ric Flair might show up on Dynamite more in the next couple months. I don't really see what good that would do. As much as I love Ric Flair, they should keep Sting's retirement about Sting and not try to make him wrestle or have a feud with Ric Flair one last time. Uh, Christian Cage came out to ruin the love fest between Ric Flair and Sting. And it was cool because Ric Flair and Sting, they had some woos. Uh, Ric Flair gave him a little chop for old time's sake. And the look on Sting's face when Ric Flair came out was priceless. But Christian comes out to interrupt. And he uh, told Sting that Tony Khan's gift to him was some gold chains, a nice suit, and a black liver. And he compared Ric Flair to Weekend at Bernie's and just skewered him. And it was really funny. I mean... I kind of do have to agree with Christian in the standpoint that it doesn't make much sense for him to give Sting Ric Flair as a gift. I mean, it's a cool moment, but as far as long term, I don't see what it does for anybody. But, I mean, I watched it, so clearly they got some good ratings from it. It was a cool moment, so we'll have to see what they do with it going forward. But... That has been this week in sports. Make sure you go check out the merch on our water cooler page. We have that up now. We've got t-shirts, we've got hats. So be sure to check some of that out. And be sure to follow us on social media, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, the whole nine yards. Check us out here on Millions. And we will see you all next week.